If you've ever thought of quilting your own projects but just don't know where to start, I have the perfect first steps for you. I've put together a PDF guide. I call it Three Steps Toward Freehand Freedom. These are the baby steps, but they can help you move past your overwhelm and show you that yes, indeed, freehand quilting can be learned. So if you'd like to snag this PDF, there's a link in the show notes, or if you're an Instagram user, just message me three steps. That's the number three, S-T-E-P-S, and I'll send you that link. Let today be the day you get started. I fell in love with the cadence and the movement of the machine. I mean, true, she was 11 pounds of ferocious, unassuming workhorse. Yes, but I think I fell in love with the nostalgic qualities that the that all of people who own them, all of the people that own the machines, fall in love with. Welcome to Measure Twice, Cut Once, the podcast where we hear quilters and other crafters' stories and draw encouragement and even life lessons from them. Today's guest is Darlene Girton. I'm your host, Susan Smith, and I'm coming to you from my quilting studio, Stitched by Susan. This is where my long arm, Lucy, and I spend lots of hours doing freehand, edge-to-edge quilting. And if you're not a quilter and those terms mean nothing to you, it's basically doodling on the surface of a quilt with a 50-pound writing utensil with needle and thread attached at high speed. And if you are a machine quilter, I invite you to tune in to the live and unscripted events that I host on my YouTube channel, also called Stitched by Susan. They're on the first and third Friday of every month. And they are usually one project from start to finish in real time. And they're streamed live. So they're interactive, meaning you can ask questions and get answers about a project while I'm working on it. So I invite you to join me there again the first and third Friday of every month. The quilting community, as I'm sure you already know, is so diverse, so colorful, and supportive. So I invite you to listen in as we meet a new quilter each week and hear their stories. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I don't like shopping. I know that sounds strange coming from a woman, but it's really, really true. I think clothes shopping in particular is such a time consumer and I do not love doing it. So I have fallen into the habit of getting a lot of my clothes from an online company called Stitch Fix. And they provided me a designer. I've had the same one for many, many months. And when you open an account, you get to hone in on your own personal style, your favorite colors, your favorite shapes, and you can provide price parameters or your favorite brands, or even whether or not you want to add accessories or jewelry or sleepwear to your orders. So I have found that to be super easy and super helpful. And as a little side bonus, nobody else in my town is wearing the same clothes. So that's awesome. So if you'd like to give them a try, in the show notes, I've put a link that will give you $25 off your first purchase. So check them out, stitchfix.com. Since we're talking to the featherweight doctor today, I thought it's fitting to mention that 
For every owner of any sewing machine, it's really important that you learn what the maintenance needs are for your machine. And they are very different from brand to brand and even model to model. So your instruction manual might tell you, you might have to look up the manufacturer or their website, but in any event, find out if you should be oiling. Certainly find out how often you should clean. And doing these very simple things for your machine will really extend its life and will many times um, avert sewing and stitch formation problems. So it's really important that you do these regular maintenance things on schedule. One of the ways that I find to remind myself is I pre-wind bobbins in a neutral color. And when I've sewn through that batch of bobbins, I know it's time to stop and I make myself stop and take a few minutes and do those simple maintenance tasks. Your machine will thank you. You know I love my coffee. In fact, I've got a fresh pot brewing right now. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash stitched by Susan. There for the price of one delicious coffee, you are able to make a one-time contribution or sign up for a monthly one if you so desire. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. And maybe take a moment now to refill your cup as you settle back to enjoy today's interview. Darlene Gurton is also known as the featherweight doctor. She's been making pretty things from fabric for a lot of years, but these days she has fallen in love with Singer Featherweight sewing machines. They have some unique qualities that make them beloved by quilters all over North America and beyond. Truly, they're time capsules that we get to use, and they're appreciated nearly 90 years later. Darlene does some very surprising things on her featherweights, like freehand quilting and even sewing of lightweight leather. She's a born teacher, so she's got lots of knowledge to share with us, and I'm sure a collection of stories. So let's welcome her now. Hello, Darlene, and welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. This is so great. Darlene, you are an expert of all things featherweight. And I mean, what quilter doesn't have a featherweight anymore? That seems to be the standard, isn't it, among quilters? I feel like no sewing room is complete without a featherweight, personally, but... You and know. we kind of are all saying to each other, how many featherweights do you have, I feel like? <laughs> yes, it's. I get asked that question a lot, actually. I have nine in my personal collection. And my rule about featherweights in general is you are only, I only permit you to own as many as you can use in one month. Ah, that's a nice measuring stick. So... For these machines, these vintage stitchers, their kryptonite is sitting and not being used. And so um, really, they they should be run about every 30 days. If you don't run the machine within a 30-day period, then you have to do some, um, some oiling and some stuff before you use it again. And so, because um, I've had people, I mean, I, I've had people say they have dozens of them, and I'm like... Can you use them and then all within a 30 day time period? And then <laughs> they start backpedaling. Oh, <laughs> and they, they are such treasures that you kind of hate to see them sitting and, you know, seizing up in that yeah. way. Well, before There's... we dive heavily into the featherweight and all the yummy things about it, maybe tell me a little bit about where you got started in your quilting or sewing journey. 
Yeah, um, I have actually been a quilter for about 26 years. So I was raised by a mom whose mom was a professional seamstress uh, in the 50s. Actually, she fed her family. My mom's father passed away um, very unexpectedly when my mother was 10. And my meme had to feed her family and support her kids by taking in mending, uh, laundering, and uh, clothing construction. And so she raised all of her granddaughters at that Singer 201 in her sewing cabinet. And so from as far back as I can remember, I was making Halloween costumes and home decor with my grandmother's assistance. It's, it's kind of funny, too. My mom never got the sewing bug. Isn't that interesting? Like, her mom was such an amazing seamstress. And then her daughters, all three of my sisters and I are quilters, um, now quilters. Uh, but my mom never got it, which is so interesting to me. It skipped a generation, I guess. That really um, is, yeah. But anyway... My mom-in-law, so I met my husband as a child. My husband and I met at 14 and 16, and his mom was the quilter. And I remember her from, we've been married now for 26 years, and I remember her from very early on in my husband's husband's and I's dating. She was like, "Uh, hey, Darlene, we should take a quilting class. And I'm like, "Uh, no, thanks. You know, I'm 19. I'm like, wonk, 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 quilting Mm -hmm. class. (laughs) But um, and at the time, I was really into like creative memories and scrapbooking. And I really liked I've always been a maker. I think maker is how I best describe myself Mm because I love to take raw materials, whether it be, you know, flour and sugar and I make a cake or fabric and thread and I make a quilt. I just love love making things, the, the art of creation. And so. Anyway, uh, so finally I married Andy. We got engaged at 19 and married at 20. And that very next winter, my mom-in-law said, hey, Darlene, I signed us up for a quilting class. (laughs) I was like, yes, ma'am. Oh, goody. (laughs) (laughs) So 26 years into my quilting journey, um, I am... It was probably seven years in when I finally figured out how to get my seams to line up, my points to meet perfectly. Um, I was strictly self-taught, really, other than some assistance from my mom-in-law. And it was way before the days of YouTube or really kind of any education. (laughs) There was certainly no podcast. Um, And so I I just kind of figured it out. And I took a formal class around seven years in. And really started to cultivate some good processes and my all of my stuff really, the quality of my end product really improved. So uh, if you fast forward about five years from there, my mom-in-law and I were tired for, of paying for long arm quilting services. And so she was like, hey, if we buy a long arm together, would you learn how to use it? And I was like, Sure okay, that's a weird thing to say. And it's just been a journey ever since first long arming. I'm 16 years into my professional long arming career. Um, We've had a couple moves under our belt now. And we landed in the Valley of the Sun, Phoenix, Arizona, which is what led to Featherweight Doctor, which is totally crazy. (laughs) So is that where you kind of first fell in love with Featherweights? Or have you had one for many more years than that? Or Well, so initially when I had started long arming for people, um, I had started bivocationally. I worked for a large telecommunications company and I was doing it kind of on the side. And then that job went away and all of a sudden 
I needed to throw my contingency plan into action, which was to become a full-time long-arm quilter. So I lost my mind. I bought a, you know, $25,000 long-arm and here I went. So it was fabulous through that first winter um, because I already had established like a, a good base of customers to work from. And then June in the Seattle area hit and I was like, Oh my gosh, I made $78 that month because in Western Washington, as soon as the first crocus pops out of the ground, all of the quilters go running out of their quilting studio and in to their gardens, not to be heard from until September. And so I thought, oh dang, I need to, this is not going to work. I I need to come up with a plan B. Well, my plan B was teaching. And so I started, I think I put in my bio, I'm, I'm very passionate about two things. First, machine quilting, first and foremost, I, I feel like there is tons of education out there when it comes to putting together, you know, one block wonders or how to, you know, learn color theory and put together a color palette for a quilt. Um, but there is not a lot of education on actual finishing work. In fact, it became the thing that I became the most passionate about because there was such an absence, at least where I was, for, for good teachers that taught how to do finishing work on a domestic sewing machine. So in comes featherweight number one. I was teaching a lot of classes, I was taking a lot of classes, and I was yarding around my 30-pound Bernina. And on one day into um, Pike Place Market in Undercover Quilts, it was still located in Pike Place Market, I snapped the handle off of my darn uh, Bernina. Did you jump on your toe? And No, I did it while removing it from its custom cabinet. And I don't know if you know anything about those, about a Bernina, but everything kind of attaches. So anyway, I'm in Pike Place Market carrying my Bernina from the base because that was how I could balance. And I thought this, this is not going to work. I cannot, I cannot do this. And so ironically, about three weeks before that class, Mr. McCollum, the late, great Mr. Dave McCollum was at my guild talking about these little cute black antique machines. And I got to be honest with you, I was not there to see Mr. McCollum. I was there to chat with my friends, to hang out. And here's this white haired man on stage talking about 70 year old machines. And I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And then I snapped that handle off of my Bernina. So by the time I got home, I, my husband, who's like my computer nerd, uh, I said, hey, I need you to find me one of those little black machines. Like, I didn't even know what it was called. All I remember Mr. McCollum saying was that it weighed 11 pounds and it was known as the perfect portable. And I needed the perfect portable because I was not going to carry my burning around like that anymore. And so in comes Esther. So I don't know if you, I know you're a featherweight fan also, and if you name your featherweights, but I name all of my featherweights. So Esther was just, there was nothing special about Esther. She was a 1952. I found her at an estate sale on Mercer Island, Washington, paid $275 for her. And at the time that was, that was a good amount of money for a featherweight, but Esther was in really nice shape. And I mean, this was about 16 years ago. I I wish I would have, I wish I would have known all this was coming. I would have paid better attention to the timing, but you could have bought um, many more of them at 275. Right. I would buy that all day long these Mm -hmm. days, but Anyway, my husband took it out into the garage to kind of buff and fluff and get her cleaned out. And he comes back in a few minutes later and he goes, you're going to name this machine, right? 
And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, she has a name. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. You are not going to name my featherweight. He goes, no. He goes, I don't want to name your featherweight, Darlene. I mean, she has a name, like engraved on her, like in every bit, piece, part, belly, foot controller, box, everything. Oh, my goodness. It says Esther J. McCombs. So clearly, Ms. McCombs was very paranoid someone was going to steal her (laughs) featherweight. Or it's bits. (laughs) Or it's bits, pieces, and parts. And so Esther came to live with me. And that is when the dream of all of this kind of started. Um, I fell in love with the cadence and the movement of the machine I mean, true. She was 11 pounds of ferocious, unassuming workhorse. Yes. But I think I fell in love with the nostalgic qualities that the that all of people who own them, all of the people that own the machines fall in love with their time capsules. They have a story of their own to tell. So that's why I was particularly intrigued when you um, reached out to me about the show, because you said that you're interested in quilters and their stories. And I thought, oh, my, do I have some stories to share of what I have found in boxes, um, what I have found in machines. Uh, It's their I had my UK viewer. I have a lady who tunes in regularly from England on my shows on my shows. And she is, she named it perfectly. She said they're time capsules. And how do you not, how do you not fall in love? So Esther came to live with me. Esther became part of my traveling repertoire of classes around the Pacific Northwest. And eventually Um, We found ourselves down in Scottsdale, Arizona. My husband's job had moved us down there. And we were picking these things up left and right. Like, let's face it, Arizona and Florida are the last places people go. And so featherweights are pretty prevalent down there between garage sales, estate sales. And so we started picking one up here and there. Um, I, Andy and I would get it uh, mechanically tuned up and then I would find at a new home, I'd take it to a class. I'd literally, you know, be teaching a machine quilting class, and these women would come in with their wheeled luggage and their male escorts to help put their fofs, their Berninas, their Husqvarnas up on the table. And thirty there or forty I'd, pounds. Yep, I'd roll yeah. in with my little shoulder strap and pop my little featherweight on the table, and I would demonstrate all techniques for finishing and piecing, including free motion quilting. And their eyes would bug out of their head, and they're like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> Wait, 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 hold the boat. Why do I need to have a, you know, this machine and my male escort and my wheel luggage if you're saying that that little 11 pound um, workhorse can do the same thing? And I'm like, I don't know. Why do you need to have that? <laughs> so let me let me step back for just a minute in case, just in case there are some listeners who don't actually know what a featherweight is. So give just a few <clears throat> sentence description, like what kind of stitching does it do? What kind of options does it have? And then we'll talk about why they're so appealing to quilters. Right. So Sanger Manufacturing Company has been in business since 1850. Um, They produced non-powered machines initially and then, of course, went into electric motors. Um, Featherweights, Sanger Featherweight 221s were produced in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, about a 40-year span, and 1.2 million machines were produced in that time. Um, 
There are different colored, just to dispel any rumor for those people who are not as familiar with them. There are three different factory colors. So you can find a Singer Featherweight 221 in black, tan, or white. They're all considered 221s. And there also was a second featherweight model called a 222. The Singer Featherweight 222 was made in UK, and it was intended for the European market. So they're very rare here in the U.S., you're lucky enough to find one. It'll cost you kind of a pretty penny. Um, and they are, um, there was only about 100,000 of the 222s made. So the difference between the 221s and the 222s is the 222s sit about a half an inch taller than the 221s. They also have feed dogs that drop into the bed of the machine. The 221 feed dogs are fixed. And so they're good for darning and that type thing. Um, the 222s also have the whole bed extension slides off of it to reveal a really tight sleeve. So seamstresses really like the 222s because they can do their French hems on cuffs and all that fun stuff. So um, Singer manufactured a machine. Well, they were ahead of their time. They didn't realize how ahead of their time that they were. Um, they literally manufactured them to last forever much different than the society that we live in today with a disposable nature and manufactured obsolescence that we have today. So you can go out and spend $2,000 on a refrigerator and then eight years and one day later after the manufacturer warranty expires, you will go buy another $2,000 refrigerator. Singer didn't have that mentality when they made these machines. Um, they, they literally created them for upper middle to upper middle income households to be able to assist with clothing construction and mending, basically. Um, so if you were lucky enough to have even a sewing machine in your house at that time, it was a pretty special thing for one to sit tabletop versus living in a piece of furniture like a cabinet or a really heavy box. So they were, you know, the original design is is quite spectacular and still, you know, wildly popular today. Um, almost 90 years. I think October 23rd this year will be its 90. Actually, I'm sorry, its 89th birthday because they were manufactured in. Um, no, I'm sorry, 90. It's 33. October of 33 was its first manufacturing run, and so that will be 90 years this October. That's crazy. It is. Um, what's, What's even crazier is that people still, like, there's like a cult. I call it a happy club, but some people call it a cult. Uh, like following with these little machines. Um, and they're and they're with good reason. They are, um, they are still spot on. You can, you can pull a machine out of a closet that's been sitting for 30 years and they'll just start, stick, start stitching like the day they were put away. I don't know one modern piece of equipment that would do that. Um, again, sitting is its kryptonite. You want to make sure you're using them regularly so nothing hardens or congeals. But I'm fully convinced that these machines will outlive my children's children. And I think that's the enormous appeal for sewists, but it does seem like there's a happy cult, a happy club following, you know, among quilters. But the appeal is they're easy to repair and fix and service yourself, and they're yeah. a workhorse. They just keep on going. They can sew light leather. I've sewn light leather on my featherweight. That's crazy. Because everyone walks, I have a beautiful store in San Point, Idaho, and we have lots of 
machines for sale and a lot of very special collection machines that I own. And people walk in and they're mesmerized. And the first question out of most people's mouths are, are these toys? Like they think they're toys. And because like, they are tiny. Oh, no. They are pint-sized. Oh, oh no, those are not toys. <laughs> I had some guy give me a hard time about the pricing on a featherweight. No, you have to understand. I have a very big, fat, fancy, newer Bernina at home. Um, I spent $6,000 on that machine. There's no featherweight that costs $6,000. And I know that my Bernina is probably going to last me maybe 20 years on a good day. Um, I had some guy come in and give me a hard time about a machine. And I'm like, that's the last machine you'll ever need to buy. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, that machine will last forever. That machine will outlive your children's children. So is that really that expensive of a price tag when you think about how... It's the last machine that he'll ever need to buy. And then he changed his tune a little bit. So anyway, um, these machines can be not only maintained and serviced with by the operator. That was one of the things that Singer really wanted to make them simple enough to be able to do that. But also... Um, through like dealers like myself, um, you can have new motors installed. Um, really, there's nothing that can't be replaced through a parts machine. Um, all the screws are proprietary. They're not made anymore. So if you lose a screw, you you kind of do need to find like a dealer that has machines that are um, that sell parts and and that kind of thing. But again, there's just nothing that can't really be fixed on them. The tan ones are the same. They have the same internal structure. The little white ones are a little different, but not much. They do have um, <clears throat> a belt drive system and not a gear drive system. And so uh, they, they run a little different, but still spot on. All the machines do is they go forwards and they go backwards. That's right. It. There is and a, some accessories that you can purchase to turn them into a zigzag machine or a buttonhole machine. But because the shaft is fixed on the machine, you'll only always have that world-renowned straight stitch um, because there's no wonk or anything. In it. If Even if you look at like your modern machine's straight stitch, there is a, a, a bit of a serpentining even on your straight on your straight. Um, on your straight setting, but that isn't the case with the with the featherweight because it only it only goes straight forwards and backwards. It, there's no serpentining at all. It's just dead straight. So that's so. kind of what Singer did is they picked one thing and they did it really, really, really well. And of course, quilt makers for the most part are just stitching straight seams. So that's there's, all we need. there's not bells and whistles, <laughs> but we don't need bells and whistles, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, my whole thing, people know these machines to be really good piecing machines, and, and there's no messing with, with their reputation when it comes to piecing. I really like to show quilters how to use them with more modern techniques like free motion quilting. Um, there are lots of quilt-as-you-go projects. My, my online community has done quite a few sew-alongs, and we do the whole quilts from all, the whole quilt from beginning to end all on the featherweight, from the piecing of the blocks to the finishing work on the block and then linking the blocks together in order to build a much larger size quilt than you'd ever want to put through the neck of a little four-and-a-half-inch net machine. Right. So how does free motion stitching work on, on a little featherweight where the feed dogs don't drop? How do you do that? So we use um, blue painter's tape to cover the feed dogs. Ah. It's non-corrosive. 
hurt the paint. You don't want to run it over your gold foil decal. I just tried to keep it on the throat plate, but that's how you cover them. Um, I have a whole video on YouTube on the setup of free motion. And one of the things that is extremely um, uh, easy about it is the featherweight will never get away from you. Like there are fast featherweights and slower featherweights. But when it comes to free motion quilting, you have to be able to hone control over the speed of your machine, speed of your hands. Um, and on my modern machines, I can bring my stitch speed down to be able to regulate my stitch size a little better. But the featherweight already has kind of a nice um, medium cadence to it. And so it's really a lot easier to gain confidence quickly in free motion quilting while using a featherweight versus a modern machine, in my very humble professional opinion. I could see that. I could see that. Well, one of the things that I think is unique about your store and your company is that you do a great deal of teaching, both on, you know, the quilting and the stitching, but also particularly on the upkeep and repair and maintenance of these machines. And I love that you offer all that instruction. Yeah, we are. I am passionate, like I said, about two things, machine quilting, teaching people how to machine quilt and how to do it efficiently on whatever equipment they're using. And secondly, how to keep these little machines running forever. Um, I have really found my stride in, in teaching and education. And during COVID, it really, really um, took a much larger virtual leap forward, being able to convert to virtual teaching through platforms like Zoom. Um, it's been it's been a huge blessing not only for me and my sanity during this last these last couple of years, but also for people finding the featherweight for the first time. In all the machines that you've handled, I know that a lot of the owners that I know personalize their machines by having them painted in some color yes. that they love because the colors are, you know, the black, the tan, the white. What's the most right. unique color you've seen or the most unique finish? Because I've actually seen polka dotted machines. Yes, I have a polka dotted machine. Her name is Minnie. Yes. Of course um, it is. <laughs> we, we started, yeah, it looks like Minnie Mouse's dress. She's red with white polka dots, of course. Uh, we started painting machines initially when the company started. My husband and I worked shoulder to shoulder for the first nine months. And that was a, one of the ways that we gained a lot of notoriety on social media was by painting. We were doing five to six machines a month. Uh, initially, we would only paint our own machines because we... Um, we're, we didn't, so on the internet, when you start posting lots of pictures of very fancy colored machines, uh, you get a lot of internet shaming. People are real big behind their, you know, behind their keyboard and their screens. And we were getting shamed for having a vendetta against black machines. Oh and my. what people didn't realize is that we would only paint machines of our own that deemed painting that needed, they warranted being painted. So the machines would um, literally be on their way to the landfill. They'd be broken, un, you know, un, non-working. Uh, and then we would take them, strip them down, give them a new color, a new lease on life, and then rebuild them. So we took a machine that had no value because it was broken down and not working and we gave it value by changing its color um, we still to this day have not been painting for other people that might change in this next season now that we're settled and the store is up and running uh, but uh, we've painted uh, red I call it the lights and brights so we would have um, bright yellow bright green bright red bright purple like Barney purple everybody love loves it. purple love it uh, 
and then um, and then I had we had the lights, which were like the mid-century modern colors. So like mint blue, mint green, light pink. pink. Mm-hmm. White. Um, what we would absolutely not do is paint a machine black. So there is a dealer rating scale. And a machine that's 10 out of 10 on the dealer rating scale would be a machine that was born in whatever year it was born in and literally just put away and never used. So you pay a premium if you purchase a machine with a 10 out of 10 rating. If I painted a machine black, it could very easily be passed off as a 10 out of 10 on the rating scale. When so it's we not, were asked yeah. yeah, several times about painting a machine black and we would paint a machine like black with gold flake or black with a pearl opalescence to it, but never just black. Cause that we didn't sense. want to. I would not have thought cool. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So we already talked about naming your machines. Do, yes. do you have a system for doing that? Do they just kind of speak to you or is it in my case, I usually name my machines after the person who I acquired them from, which makes it really yeah. simple. So the best case scenario for naming your featherweight is if you know who the machine first belonged to. They, If you have that information, if you find a name on a receipt in the box or even a sales receipt, that should be the name of the machine. Um, but let's face it, like in most of the machines that have come through my store, maybe a handful of them have had actual um, beginning user information in the box. Um, so in some cases, I have named my machines after influential like people in my life. Like for instance, I do have my grandmother's machine. We talked about my meme and that machine's name is Agnes after my meme. Um, but if I didn't have Agnes's or meme's machine, I would have named for sure one of my featherweights after, after her, because she definitely cultivated that desire within me from a very young age to create with fabric and thread. Um, but the other thing you can do is you can Google, go out, First of all, you need to find the year that your machine was born. And we have a database on our website, featherweightdoctor.com. So you can uh, do that, that just from the model number, right? Yep. So you go down. The model number on a featherweight is always on the bottom of the, of the machine. If you have a machine that you are not sure is a featherweight, if it is sitting in a box or a cabinet or the serial number is on the top deck of the machine, it is not a featherweight. Featherweights do not need anything to stand alone on a table. They sit tabletop on their own feet. And the serial number is always on the bottom of the machine. So once you write down the numbers, you can go out to our site, scroll all the way to the bottom of the homepage, and then uh, you can look up your date. So once you have your date, you can go out to Google and you can Google most popular female names, 19 whatever. Whatever the year was. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can pick a name that kind of speaks to you. So over the years, I have had uh, women and clients name machines after me, which is, it just makes my heart smile that I got to be that person that was their guru that introduced them to their new favorite machine. Um, uh, I'll actually, the story I'll tell at the end is is one of the more recent um, women that have come in my life that have um, that that has a machine named Carol Darlene, and I'll explain how that how that came about. But okay. um, yeah, that's how how you name them. I have nine featherweights; they all have names. Um, I did let my online community name one of them. I acquired a tan machine, and I 
I had kind of already gone through the names of, of like the women that I wanted to name them after, um, named a couple after the Google search standard. And then um, I acquired this tan. So my online community named my tan featherweight Charlotte. <laughs> That's fun. They, they all have a little bit of ownership there. What's what's yeah. the most unique thing that you found in the in the box or the carrying case of a featherweight over the years? Um, probably um, dead bugs. <laughs> oh, lovely. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Old corpses. <laughs> Old spider nets. Uh, carcasses of cockroaches. Um, oh my goodness! My job is not glamorous all the time. <laughs> I was hoping for like you know vintage receipts with copper plate handwriting. No. Oh, so I definitely have found one of my favorite things we found in a machine one time. It must have come out of Hawaii. The sales receipt was from Honolulu, Hawaii, um, and there was a handwritten letter from the woman who purchased the machine in Hawaii to her daughter. And I read the letter. It, it went, you know, Uncle Joe this, Aunt May that, blah, 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 blah. But at the very end, she says, this is my sewing machine. I want you to have it and use it. And then she even drew the thread path. She drew the front of the machine and drew the thread path to show her daughter how to thread it. Uh, and I thought that was really special. Anytime we find paperwork like that in a machine box that is coming through the orphanage, which is where I call the machines that we source looking for their forever homes. Um, I always make sure to pass on all of that information, original sales, bills. Um, I even leave like I had a machine that came through the shop this last year that was owned by a costumeer from the original Moulin Rouge. So this oh machine goodness. came out of... Um, uh, I believe it was Louisiana or Memphis. I can't remember the exact state that it was. I had the lady's name. It was the daughter, the granddaughter that sold it to me. And so on all of the th the little bobbin spools were all these like bright colored like turquoise and fuchsia threads. I left them all on there. I just thought Love that was that. the coolest thing. And it went to live in Seattle. Awesome. Uh, that machine went to Seattle. So, Well, I'm sure we could go on and on and on with stories. <laughs> but before we go, I always like to ask my guests if they have a little gem of a story or piece of wisdom that they'd like to leave with our listeners. Yes. So I we recently opened our store in October um, at the Cedar Street Bridge. And I met this, this woman and her daughter had come in um, during one of our opening parties. And she she looked a little wide-eyed and she said, do you teach classes here? And I said, yes, I love to teach classes, you know, mostly technique classes on the featherweight and quilting, finishing techniques. She goes, well, and she starts sobbing. And I thought, oh my gosh, what did I say? And she said, well, my, my best friend, Carol, and I grew up together. She said, um, Carol was, and I had dreams as when we were young women in our working careers of quilting together when we retired. And Carol, um, unfortunately, got sick and passed away a few years ago. And Sandra had just uh, retired. She was a judge's clerk at in the local Bonner County uh, courthouse. And so she she's like, I, I missed my opportunity to sew with my best friend. And I said, I said, well, can I be that person to you? I said, can I can I take Carol Carol's legacy and can I can I show you what she would have showed you I'd I'd love to be that person for you 
And so Sandra, so we're both sobbing now. It's ridiculous. There was tears everywhere. And she goes, she goes, I think I'd like that, she said. And so she showed up to some of my classes with her little brother. And it was, it was a great machine. But Sandra was going to quickly outgrow it. You know, once you start using those entry-level machines and you start actually learning technique, you outgrow those machines very quickly. They seem like a good price point on the front end, but then you find out later that, you know, it's not going to work. So anyway, over the course of a a five-week series of classes we were taking together, she landed up picking on a featherweight and she named the machine Carol Darlene after her friend Carol and after her new quilt teacher, Darlene. So uh, never... I guess if I had to leave someone with a little nugget, you never know when when you can bless people. Like I did not know that like Sandra was going to walk into my store that day and that her and I were going to hit it off and I was going to be I was going to be honored to be the woman that showed her um, the things that her best friend Carol couldn't but would have wanted her to know. And, and then show her her new favorite sewing machine. So just everybody should be prepared on a day-to-day basis to be that blessing for someone, to be that light for someone. And you never know which day it's going to happen. So you go in with your, with, you know, with expectations of, of being a blessing to, to someone that day. So, so good. So good. Well, thank you so much for sharing with me. Do you want to give our listeners a quick idea of where they can find you? You've mentioned your shop and you've mentioned the Cedar Bridge, but I don't think you've mentioned your town. Yeah, so we live in um, baby Sandpoint, Idaho, home of 8,300 people, which in other cities I have lived in, it's a small town. Uh, I do travel the country quite a bit. Um, I have, I travel to Omaha, Nebraska quite a bit, uh, Phoenix, Arizona a couple times a year. Um, upcoming workshops will include Knoxville, Tennessee, and potentially Reno, Nevada also. Um, we are, we make all of our education available virtually as well. So for those people who don't have the ability to travel or don't live within reach of those towns, um, we are getting ready to kind of drop our fall schedule, um, mostly specializing and focusing in te- on techniques for singer featherweights and also for machine quilting. So you can check out our website, featherweightdoctor.com. Um, if you are local to Sandpoint, Idaho, or have the ability to to get there, uh, we are located in the historic Cedar Street Bridge on the second level. Our store name is Sand Creek Quilting, home of Featherweight Doctor. We have a big classroom, a long arm, a view of Schweitzer and the lake. Um, it's it's a, it's a absolutely beautiful place to work every single day. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I am going to go try free motion quilting on my featherweight. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. Thank you again, Susan, for having me. Thank you for tuning into the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and review on the listening app of your choice? And please, please do share this episode with your friends that you think would enjoy it. I'd love to hear from listeners who'd like to nominate a crafter with a story to tell. If you know such a person, or you are one, email me at info at stitchedbysusan.com. So until next time, may your sorrows be patched and your joys be quilted.